0: Crash Connell welcoming you to Thursday, August 24th, a fresh new podcast. Mary Danielson back at the microphone. Good morning. Good morning. It's a good day to be serving the Lord and seeking his guidance in all things. What a privilege it really is to wake up in his care and be able to serve him another day. I am so looking forward to our guest, Patricia Angler of Answers in Genesis. She has such a heart for young adults and how they can cement their worldview uh, so as not to be conformed to this world. You know, how how can we turn the tide of the young adult um, who's bombarded with conflicting worldviews as soon as they walk out the door? And we're going to be chatting with Priscilla in just a couple of minutes. I have two scripture passages this morning. I'm going to read the first one and pray, and then I have one that the Lord brought to my mind as I was uh, thinking about today's guest. So we have Psalm 27, 4 and 5. One thing I have desired of the Lord that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me on a high rock. Oh, would you acknowledge the Lord with me? Uh, Lord, your word tells us to continually, continually seek those things which are above. Uh, were uh, incorruptible in eternal things cannot fade away. We're bombarded on all sides, Lord, every day with temporal earthly things that profit little, and we groan uh, in anticipation and culmination of all things. Lord, we ask that you help us bring our thoughts and desires in line with your will. Help us keep our eyes on the kingdom to come. We ask that the meditations of our heart would be pleasing to you today, and so we lift up this podcast to you and pray it would be fruitful for the kingdom. We lift up Patricia and her ministry uh, for wisdom, direction, and for all needs to be met. We thank you for her gift of faith, Lord, and her boldness for truth. Bless her family and guide and protect them. In Jesus' name, amen. My second passage is 1 Peter 3.15, and that says, But sanctify the Lord in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. And I was thinking about that word defense, and um, it's apologia, apologetics. Uh, Patricia Engler, my guest, is an apologetic speaker, author, and podcast host for Answers in Genesis, AIG. After 12 years of homeschool and a Bachelor of Science degree, she backpacked 360 degrees around the world in 180 days, documenting how Christian students keep their faith at universities. The top takeaways from this research are available in her book, Prepare to Thrive, a Survival Guide for Christian Students. A series of God stories resulted in Patricia joining AIG Canada as a speaker, writer, and youth outreach coordinator before transferring to AIG US in 2022. And that same year, she, uh, the same year, she embarked on a second backpacking journey, this time to research Marxism's history and consequences in Europe. Wow, how interesting. Both backpacking trips form the base, basis for separate teaching series available on her blog. Also blogging and with blogging and speaking, she serves as Answers News Panelist, co-hosts AIG's new podcast for young adults, Zero Compromise, which is fantastic, by the way, and is pursuing a master's degree in bioethics to help Christians think biblically about sanctity of life issues and emerging technologies. Wow, in her spare time, I don't know where she gets any, Patricia can be found adventuring outdoors, exploring back roads, sketching, reading, playing the ukulele. Like I said, I don't know where she gets any spare time, but Patricia, welcome to Stand Up for the Truth this morning.
1: Thanks so much. Great to be with you guys.
0: Wow, it is great to have you here. Um, I want to start with just a little backstory on you, a little overview, and I don't want to jump ahead of you, but I also wanted to, uh, because you were raised in a Christian home, but I want to start also with your backpacking travels uh, and kind of what made you hit the road, and where did that idea germinate? So, if you could start us out with your backstory and just give us a little bit of information on how that that journey came about,
1: Sure, I'll set the stage, so, yeah, I was raised in a Christian home, great family. um, so we grew up believing the Bible, but I hadn't really stopped to think about why Genesis specifically matters, you know, I would see. Cute little displays about Noah's Ark at, you know, little museums and stuff that talk about flood evidence. Not not the good creation museum, but just other places. And I kind of thought that rocks and fossils and creation and evolution were more of like a nice retirement hobby for some people, mm-hmm. but not actually relevant to the things that I knew were important, sharing the gospel and so on. But that all changed. I was 14. I was going to a homeschool convention in Alberta where I grew up. I'm Canadian. And Ken Ham was speaking there. He's the founder of Answers and Genesis. And he just connected the dots for me, showing how all the things I knew to be important, sharing the gospel, doing missions, feeding the hungry, all of that. Why does human life matter? Why does marriage matter? All of that is founded in Genesis 1 to 11. So anything that undermines Genesis undermines everything I knew to be important. I was like, wow, I have to become an apologetic speaker like Ken Ham someday (laughs) and help defend Genesis against this cultural attack. So that's what led me to really want to study Um, science, and specifically evolution, at a secular university environment where I ended up doing that, to be able to get a firm grip on what evolution is, to be able to talk about it, but also to understand how to navigate this system as a Christian student and Mm -hmm. keep my faith in the process and learn how to help other Christian students. And I had always wanted to travel, so that kind of, after I graduated, led to some of the other next steps.
0: Wow. And so you you transferred to AIGUS, and then you were Um, you had to take a pause there because you couldn't travel right away. You had to await uh, a visa. And uh, was this the first trip or the second trip?
1: So that was the second one. So the the first one one was right after I graduated university. And at that point, I just wanted to know how other Christian students' experiences compared to mine so that I could just get a really good feel for what helps not just me, but Christians everywhere. So that was the first backpacking journey I did, and then the Marxism was the second one. So first backpacking journey, I called it 360 and 180, because I was going the whole 360 degrees around the world in 180 days, just interviewing students. And I asked, Uh, What are the challenges of being a student? What are the opportunities? What's your advice for a first-year Christian student? Mm -hmm. How can churches support students better? And I saw this really interesting pattern as I traveled across 17 countries, including my home country, Canada. People answered the first two questions differently, different ideas about the challenges and opportunities they were facing. But their answers to the last two questions, advice for students and how can churches and families be supporting students better, that sounded so similar all over the world, no matter what Mm -hmm. students were studying. So that was exciting because it meant that while the problems students face in different contexts looks different, the solutions for overcoming those challenges look so similar wherever Mm -hmm. you go, whatever you're studying. So that means then that if churches and families and ministries can be focusing on these solutions, that can make a difference for the future of the church around the world. And then what I got even more excited about is learning uh, once I joined dances in Genesis Canada, transferred to the U.S., I'm interviewing other students, uh, hearing about how important it is to equip students to combat the Marxism they're going to be learning. As I was learning more about being a Christian in communist and uh, Marxist types of cultures and the hostility they face there, I found that the same foundations and solutions that help Christians in communist and persecution contexts keep mm. their faith are the same ones that help students. Mm-hmm. So, it doesn't just apply for students surviving university. It applies for um, surviving hostile context in general. Wow. But it's even more exciting because if you look at biographies of world changing Christians, people like William Wilberforce, they also excelled in these foundations. So, they're for any Christian to keep and live out a strong biblical view in a way that impacts even hostile contexts mm-hmm. and transforms them through Jesus.
0: Wow. You know, I can't help but think as a mom, if. if um my daughter said i'm going to travel around the world in 180 days a- an extended anxiety attack on my part but <laughs> i mean cuz you went by yourself
1: right me and god in a backpack you and god yes, in a but back- i got to see <laughs> i got to see god work in so many cool ways so it was a really fantastic faith building experience
0: and then how did you decide what countries to go to cuz i'm i'm sure there aren't always open doors but it had something to do with certain countries have um you know they they teach evolution they have promised to teach evolution in their school systems, right? And this is across the yeah. world?
1: Yeah, that's right. So um, when I was still in university and kind of just trying to get a feel for the things that other students go through, I came across this document, um, the Academies partnership on the teaching of evolution. I can't remember the exact name, but it's the IAP statement on the teaching of evolution. You can find it online. And it lists all these countries. At the time, it was, I believe, 68 nations and international academies, other uh, science academies that had pledged to wow. teach evolution and long ages, millions of years, things that contradict the Bible, in their science um, public school systems. So I printed out a map, and I just colored in red all the nations that had signed this pledge. And when I saw that that red band of nations wrapped all the way around the world, wow. so it's not just a, you know biology classes somewhere in Tennessee kind of thing. This yeah. is a, all over the world. Students are being taught this. Wow. So that's when I started deciding I need to... I need to see if I can travel to some of these different countries. So it was really just uh, seeing what doors God opened, yeah. seeing where I could find places to stay, and, yeah, just really letting God do the <laughs> do the yeah. guiding.
0: Yeah, he really honored your faith. had a whole chapter in this book, um, which is so well, well laid out, by the way, but there is a chapter on your travels. But I love the way the book is laid out. You have part one, war stories, part two, boot camp, part three, in the trenches, and then appendixes. Appendices, appendixes, yep. uh, about uh, just critical thinking and that sort of thing. Uh, so I was fascinated. I love your, your, your chapter on travel simply because it's so neat to see how the Lord met you there in every yes. way, uh, in and out of these various countries. And
1: were you able to go to Israel? I didn't, but I would love to someday. Yeah, yeah that would be fantastic. It'll have to be trip number three.
0: Yeah. Oh, there you go. Trip number three. And you encountered, uh, Muslim students, uh, Asian students Mm -hmm. with, you know, varying faith that way, restricted access nations, and yet, Mm -hmm. uh, now did you need an interpreter? Did you have to have someone with you to, to help you navigate these nations?
1: Um, it varied on the country. It was always kind of cool how God, like, there was never a time that I couldn't interview someone because of a language barrier. There was okay. always someone who was able to translate. So, yeah, God really set it up quite well. But most of the time, yeah, that wasn't, uh, wasn't a problem. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool.
0: Um, let's start with war stories because um, you have a quote in here that I absolutely love. You say, this is keys to surviving the battle for young people. No one expect, no one expecting to survive a battle can enter the front lines armed with only sweatpants and a water gun. Which really says it to me because we have to be equipped and we have to keep, uh, make sure that our young people are equipped. But the students, uh, young people, we are, actually all of us are already bombarded via the media, uh, with humanistic messages, especially evolution, but, Media museums, zoos, movies, books, nature programs, national parks there 's always uh, evolutionary statements there 's always uh, you, you can 't even turn on a nature program without hearing how 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 old the earth is and then a student gets to a university and uh, there are posters everywhere offering, you know, Eastern mysticism, paganism, hedonistic lifestyles, alternative lifestyles, those who mock Christianity. So you have your flyers, propaganda displays, uh, speaking events and all that. The problem is clearly a worldview one. And young people, you say, are strategic targets in the worldview battle. Why especially young people? And let's talk about your first part of your book called War Stories. What do you want to tell us about that?
1: Oh, for sure, yeah. So that one, I was just kind of laying out, this is what you can expect going into schools. This is what's happening, because like I said, it is a worldview battle. We talk about a lot of answers in Genesis. It is a battle between God's Word being the highest authority for truth, and some version of human ideas, human reasoning. So man's word being the authority, and putting that above God's Word, so that we think we can decide what parts of the Bible are true or not. And that's really what everything comes down to. So... In this worldview battle um, to coordinate human reasoning as the authority for truth, so secular humanism, young people have really been targeted, oh, just for this long long running span right back into history. Mm-hmm. You can see that in all kinds of regimes, not even just in the, the school setting. Look at, you know, communist regimes in the past, Nazis, in any kind of time where there is one worldview trying to supplant another, young people are primary targets. And why is that? Well, it's because young people are society's future decision makers, first of all. If you want to control a society, you have to capture the young people and shape their thinking. And young people are also especially easy to influence in mass because um, they're the ones that are very easy to reach with the school systems, public Mm -hmm. school and the mass media typically. Right, he regimes harnessing all these types of things, and uh, a quote that I think I mentioned in the book, probably I'm not sure if it's in, in chapter three or where it exactly is, but it's by a humanist called Charles Francis Potter, and he back in the back in 1930 was saying that every American school is a school of humanism. This mm-hmm. is the world view that they're trying to replace Christianity with, and he said, "What can a theistic Sunday school's meeting for an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of the kids?" due to stem the tide of the five-day program of humanistic teaching in the school system. Mm. So this has been a concerted attack on the Word of God through young people, mm-hmm. and it's caused so much devastation.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is Stand Up for yeah. the Truth. My name is Mary Danielson. I'm talking to Patricia Engler today from AIG. She has her own blog. You can go to Answers answersingenesis.org slash blogs and just uh, click on her name. Uh, her latest two articles are entitled "Karl Marx: What Christians Need to Know About Him" and "The Dark Spiritual Roots of Global Socialism." Um, uh, Patricia. I was a little bit – this really opened my eyes because I think we tend to think of the public school situation here in the States, the library situation, what what they're teaching our kids. I don't think of this as a problem around the world. And I think it's, it's, it is fascinating, like we talked about, to realize that evolution – schools and nations have pledged to teach evolution. And I think, what in the world is up with that? And so global students – now, uh, another thing that's common around the world is – just the the growing pains being away from home when you're in a, a university situation. But just the isolation and and uh, the environment that they're in. Um, they can't share their faith on campus, maybe. And studies show a lot of students don't survive these challenges. Um, what does it say? You say here that Barna Researcher's book, Faith for Exiles, found that only 10% of Christian-raised young people are living a thriving bili- uh, biblical worldview. And do you think possibly, because churches aren't even teaching the word anymore are, are we feeling them at a more basic level
1: I unfortunately would say that in a lot of cases that's not only what I've seen but what campus ministers I've talked to in multiple countries have seen so uh, several campus ministry leaders that I talked to whether that was in New Zealand or Canada um, possibly even India <laughs> it's hard to remember the conversations now but different yeah. leaders were saying how they often see young people grow up going to church And then they get to campus, and they don't actually know what the Bible teaches, how Mm -hmm. to read the Word of God for themselves, how to apply it all throughout um, their thinking in everyday life. And I think that's kind of just an example of how, unfortunately, in a a lot of ways, churches tend to be giving young people the opposite of what they need. Mm -hmm. And that's with well-meaning intentions. Mm -hmm. But here's what I mean. Um, I'll just... To explain what I mean, the the three foundations I'll have to just mention what I found that students need and it this connects to what the Barna research has found. All over the world, the things that help young people keep their faith in university and the things that help Christians survive hostile context comes down to three things that I think the churches um in a lot of ways needs to be doing a better job of, of helping young people get. So spiritual foundations is the first one, that's having a close personal walk with God, owning your own faith, knowing what the Bible says, making that the basis for your thinking about everything, Mm -hmm. just living out your life with God. Second is intellectual foundations, having that apologetics training, so being able to defend your faith logically, as well as biblical critical thinking skills to be able to answer new questions that come up and think like an apologist yourself. So we got spiritual foundations, intellectual foundations, and then the third one, this is a big one, interpersonal foundations. Having a strong Christian community network around you, including peers, a godly biblical local church, and older adult mentors was mm-hmm. huge. So those are the things students need, but unfortunately what I see going along, um, going on in a lot of churches is that young people are getting the opposite of what they need. So for instance, spiritual foundations, instead of discipling them to know what the Bible says, there's a big push for entertainment and that kind of mm. thing, and the idea is to try to keep young people in the church, but they can get entertainment yeah. that's probably, you know, a lot more high budget. Just you know, sitting on their couch somewhere, and we can't out entertain the the secular system. Yeah. We need to we need to be giving young people what they actually need. So yeah. discipleship. Uh, second is teaching apologetics instead of trying to, well first of all, compromising on God's Word and not being able to give them answers or just kind of ignoring or suppressing those questions. And then third, um, I often see churches segregating age groups. So you send the seniors off one way, the young people Mm -hmm. another way. And unfortunately, what that does is it cuts off mentorship opportunities. So totally legitimate to be teaching things at different levels, but you also want to make sure that you're still leaving space open for those important Mentorship, networking opportunities.
0: Yeah, wow. So those
1: are just yeah a few of the ways that I think there can be just practical, practical and important differences made, and that's not just in churches. I want to clarify: it. As the family is the primary place for God's yeah. designed for this to happen. You yeah. can't just send your kids to you know youth group for an hour on Wednesday nights and think that they're going to be prepared. Uh, this is a discipleship process that has to be happening throughout the whole week.
0: Yeah, you know that's exactly what I was thinking. It goes back even farther. Um, because the church isn't really responsible to raise your child up in the ways of the Lord. The parents are responsible. So hopefully they are feeding them the word. And I know parents want to do that. I know they mean well, but day after day, life comes in, right? And, and things happen and, and your home life may be less than perfectly functional. And it, it's difficult. And I, I guess my prayer is that parents would take the time needed to make sure that the kids are in the word. They're understanding that. And then hopefully, there's a good church, right, Patricia? Because sometimes there isn't even a good Bible teaching church, um, or a solid youth group, um, around, right? What, what can they do, uh, if they can't even find a decent Bible teaching church? Because these are optimal. I love your three points here. Spiritual foundations, intellectual foundations, interpersonal foundations. What can they do if they don't even have that? Or say the child's been in public school all week and now you gotta erase yeah. everything, you know, like an Etch a Sketch, you gotta, I'm old here. I said edge to sketch, but anyway, <laughs> you have to, I gotcha. okay, good. <laughs> you have to shake erase the whole start again. Yeah. You have to Great. hold it up and shake it and start again. And I guess that's a difficult thing. At what point? I mean, I'm sure that you feel tell us about homeschooling. How did that go for you? Obviously, it was a superb foundation for you. How would you encourage, encourage parents, busy parents to maybe make that a priority?
1: Oh yeah so um going back to the things that the things that helped prepare for college, because you mentioned what if churches don't have, or like what if people don't have access to a good youth group and that kind of thing. And we didn't really have a lot of discipleship from our youth group specifically growing up where we were at. Um, But we were part of a Bible memorization program called Bible Quizzing at the time. So that was a really, really great way to get a lot of the Word of God Mm -hmm. in our hearts. Mm -hmm. And then my mom had also encouraged me when she knew that I wanted to go to, to secular university and study this, she encouraged me to reach out to... The local director of our local Christian, or sorry, um, creation science association. So she had a PhD in biology, Dr. Margaret Helder, and she'd been doing this type of thing for years. So I was like, just reach out to her, see if you can ask her questions. So that's how I got connected with someone who could mentor me in the sense of being able to prepare me for university and be a resource for being able to answer questions about things that I couldn't answer when Mm -hmm. I was in school. So Mm -hmm. I would encourage parents to, uh, just pray for God to send the right mentorship connections for their young people um, and the right Bible teachers, like what Bible quizzing was for us, um, because, you know, the Lord honors those prayers. He wants your kids yeah. to be discipled too, and if you're being intentional about it, then uh, He knows He knows the plan that He has. Mm-hmm. So I encourage that. And then the other cool thing is I like to remind students that books, and especially autobiographies, our mentors as well. So the media is a mentor. So Mm -hmm. on that note, you want to be careful what you're putting in your mind. So avoiding negative influences, but on the positive side, through autobiographies, we can be mentored and discipled by some of the strongest men and women of God in Mm. history. I mean, people like Corey ten Boom, um, Hudson Taylor, I love Brother Andrew's stories, I heard a Christian campus ministry leader in Holland say, a mentor is anyone with a story of God's faithfulness to share. Mm -hmm. So when we read stories of God's faithfulness in other people's lives, for me, when I was a teenager, it was reading those types of biographies that gave me the hunger to get to know God that way myself, to be able to live out these types of stories. So, um telling young people stories from the past that can excite them to get to want to walk with God themselves Mm -hmm. because, you know, it's hard to just tell someone, well, read your Bible because you have to, you know, Yeah. to give them that actual desire to know God. But when they can see God work in and through other people, then that is what can help spark that hunger and pray for for young people. Um, One line that stands out to me once from uh, a student I was praying with back in college, we were walking past the, the campus chapel, and she was praying for some of the students from other faiths at campus, and she just said, Lord, please bless them with a hunger for your word. Mm. So pray for your kids to be blessed oh, with a hunger for the word of God. Yeah.
0: Wow. Also, um, what is very good to make young people grateful for their lives is reading stories of the persecuted church. I'm talking about today's stories, not just Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is fabulous, but today's stories of persecuted Christians around the world they to see God's hand in their lives, how much more so can these young people see God's hand in their lives in their university situation? Now you've you're you're a real success for I him. Mean, you you've defied the odds when it comes to uh going to a secular university and coming out on the other side with a very, very strong faith. So we know, we know that it's doable. And you talk about in the book how um you really it helps you draw closer to the Lord. You'd sit in, in a in a, a class and professors would say something that would for lack of a better word trigger because you know they're they're coming against what you believe and your foundational truth. So how how did you know how should students react to that sort of thing? What's what's the calm cool and collected thing to do and how can they draw closer to the Lord through these um these kind of events?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um the whole last half of the book the in the trenches part kind of breaks that down in a lot more detail but to give you just a quick overview um, I found it really helpful in those classroom settings, to apply what I called three rules of critical thinking: don't panic, break it down, and follow up. <laughs> so, step one: don't panic. Yeah. When you hear a message that challenges your faith, sometimes you can be like, "Oh man, like there's this, there's something that I didn't know that contradicts the Bible. Uh, what am I going to do? Is everything I believed wrong? No, 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 no. Don't panic. We know God's word is true. One of my favorite anonymous quotes says, "Truth fears no questions. Mm. The Bible will always stand up to scrutiny." So I encourage students, when you hear faith-challenging messages in class, if you have to take notes about it, put it in quotation marks. That frees you from feeling like you're writing down a definite fact. You're just writing down what some person happens to be saying. Mm. So put it in quotation marks, and then if you have a question about it, write your question down so that you can remember what it is and follow up on it later. That's rule one. Don't panic. Second, break it down. So separate everything that's fact and logic from everything that's not fact and logic. Compare it against the Word of God that you know is true find, sort out anything that's, you know, propaganda or persuasion, ask, is this true because? Um, is that reason actually relevant to to the logic and the, the facts of the message? There's this whole set, um, set of tools I called Seven Checks of Critical Thinking that uh, you can find it on our website, answersandgenesis.org. You can find it on our Uh, answers.tv platform. It's in the book. It's, It's in a lot of resources that I have. So seven checks of critical thinking that you can separate down what's back, what's not back in that message compared against scripture. And then the last step, follow up. So you might still have some unresolved questions left over, but what I would like to remember in that time, Simon Peter's words to Jesus, when Jesus's teachings became so tough, a lot of disciples started walking away. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's in uh, John chapter 6. So these words encouraged me by reminding me that the weight of certainty for my faith far surpassed the uncertainty of any unresolved questions I might happen to have. But I found that what I did learn from following up on my questions, taking them to websites like AnswersInGenesis.org or taking them to my mentor, Dr. Helder, by and large, I found that what I learned from that ended up strengthening my faith. And other students I've talked to in other places have found similar things that when they're in tough environments, when they follow up on their questions and trust the Word of God, they end up with a stronger faith because of it.
0: Yes, absolutely. And it doesn't need to strip them of their faith, right? I mean, if, like we talked about earlier, you got to have the right foundation. But also, it, they don't need to come out on the other side in rebellion to what they were raised as. I. I it breaks my heart to think that students are going to university and and they're looking to be uh have their faith deconstructed you know i I would hope like yeah. like you found that your faith uh, is something that you know is solid and that you have stood on it and you're going to come out on the other side but you know, there's a lot of differences between people and young people, and, uh, that's just, uh, that's the way it is, right? But we gotta pray for our young people. College University is starting back up again. We're gonna, uh, talk about Marxism and, and your second travels in the second half. You were approaching a break, and you talk about, um, brainwashing on campus, and, and we might think that's kind of an old-fashioned word that doesn't apply anymore, but brainwashing is what it is. Um, eight hallmarks of brainwashing. By interviewing survivors of communist prisons. Wow, that's, that's a good lead up to our next uh, segment here. So like I said, we're going to take a break shortly. And then we're going to talk about Marxism. And if we have a chance, I would love to get back to the critical thinking. What did you call that? Uh, seven checks. Of seven crit- checks. Yeah, yeah. So we can go to the Marxism. I would really, really like to go to the seven checks of critical thinking at the end if we have time. I hope we do. Uh, again, Patricia Angler. This is Stand For The Truth with Mary Danielson. Her blog at Answers in Genesis. Answers org slash blogs and click on her name. A lot of great stuff there. Also, podcast Zero Compromise. That's a great podcast. So we are going to be back after some words from our sponsors here, and we're going to continue on with Patricia Engler from Answers in Genesis. And be sure to check out Stand Up for the Truth uh, podcast, the video versions on our YouTube channel, Q90FM Radio, Q90FM Radio on YouTube. And we're trying to get to uh, 500 subscribers. So check it out, Q90FM Radio on YouTube
1: for the video versions of our podcast. Back in two minutes.
0: Feedback, questions, and topic suggestions are always appreciated. Email us at comments at standupforthetruth.com. Welcome back to Stand Up For The Truth. My name is Mary Danielson. We have Patricia Angler here from Answers in Genesis. And... Uh, we're really enjoying speaking to her about uh, her university experience, her travel experience, um, and a lot, a lot of wisdom about how to successfully send your youngster off to get their degree without capitulating on their faith or losing what they have because. Um, I read the end of the book, and we win. So, um, American Library Association president says, being a Marxist lesbian is really important to me. How in the world did we get here? Emily, Here's the subheader. Emily Drabinsky says she has no regrets for embracing an ideology that unleashed 100 million deaths in the 20th century. A self-described Marxist lesbian who is now in charge of the American Library Association says she regrets the controversy caused by touting the label when she rose to the position but continues to embrace identifying with an ideology responsible for more than 100 million deaths across the 20th century. And I guess she just started um, her position recently this summer. The ALA is currently a major player in the ongoing controversy over public schools and libraries exposing children to sexually related material that features uh, age-inappropriate explicit details and or imagery, as well as left-wing ideological messages via its library bill of rights that declares books and other materials in libraries should not be excluded etc 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 I didn't know that the ALA was that far gone but um Patricia you had a second set of travels and you're mm-hmm. writing a second book on marxism and uh actually the the uh, rise of marxism in our land tell us about your travels a little bit and about that book what are what are we looking at here
1: yeah, you got it. So when I had joined Antis in Genesis Canada, this is when more of the stuff I was I was only learning myself like how much of the issues that we're seeing in culture actually need to tie back to this Marxist agenda. So to give you a sample, at the beginning of my first set of travels, looking around universities, I came across a poster on a Canadian university that said, Capitalism is war and racism and patriarchy and climate <laughs> crises and colonialism um, and it was telling students to join Canada's Young Communist League. So I was like, what in the wow. world, you know? But then I started learning about how all of these things that we're seeing in culture, um, you know, calls for the, the racism the or anti-racism mm-hmm. and the climate crisis. It does tie back to these ideas that are rooted in what we consider Marxist conflict theory. So viewing society in terms of oppressed identities and oppressor identities, but so different different from the biblical definition of oppression and justice. The Bible views oppression in terms of wrongdoings, actions that you commit that oppress another person, but the neo-Marxist view looks at it in terms of if you are born in a certain group, or you know, if you're a man instead of a woman, then you are automatically an oppressor. So these are some of the things responsible for all the, the issues that we're seeing and the calls for a type of cultural revolution happening in culture, so when I was doing the second set of travels to try to learn more about this, to help Christians, whether students or just uh, the church in general, to be able to understand how Marxism contradicts the Bible and understand what's going on and what we can do about it, I found so many other examples of this revival of Marxism we're seeing in culture. So I just focused on Europe and the UK for that particular trip. And one moment that really, really stood out to me was I went to... Berlin the University of Berlin where Karl Marx got his uh, first he did his first uh, well his, his main round of studying as a as a student there and on that campus that particular day there was a pro communist protest happening mm. so there's flags everywhere there's rainbow flags there's a flag with the emblem you know the soviet a hammer and sickle emblem on it. There's flags for the Communist Party of Germany. There's flags for these international uh, communist associations. And I was, you know, it, it was kind of unsettling because, you know, I didn't expect to see this in my lifetime. I didn't expect to see it in a Western country. I didn't yeah. expect to see, be, see it being pushed in my country, in America. Even in uh, London, I saw a Marxist poster. I saw uh, Marxist type posters in Ireland a little before that. And to see this protest happening not two miles from where the Berlin Wall had stood, yeah. that people wow. died trying to get across to leave communism, and now we're seeing people cheering for communism less than 50 years later, wow. it was disturbing. Yeah, absolutely so that would uh, be disturbing. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I, I can't. I guess, hmm. you know, we're surprised that it's in this country um, quite a bit, actually, but, you know, our leaders today, and, and we're, we're heading towards that one world, everything, so it makes sense on that level where we are in prophecy where we are in in the scheme of things uh, but still it, it has to be very very unsettling like you said right near where the, the Berlin Wall was of uh, only 50 years that's just that's just incredible now you um, in your book uh, are you also talking about uh, technology because technology is the tool I'm thinking so many dictatorships throughout history would have loved to have technology to make it so easy to round us all up and and uh, tell us where to go um, you know, walking in a straight line. Do you tie technology, you know, like social credit scores and such, into your book?
1: Yes. So there's, there's a bunch of layers to that. So, um, yeah, technology does provide a lot of the infrastructure for the surveillance and uh, monitoring that um, totalitarian systems need. So you can even see that um, in the book I mention a bunch of this in the first chapter, just talking about the revival of Marxism and Um, What social credit systems are. So that's basically um, when you, the regime, the state, the school, whatever's in control, defines morality in a certain way, uh, good and bad, and then assigns you points for your behavior based on whether you're conforming to being a good citizen, where good is sometimes defined in ways that contradict God's word. Uh, man being the authority for truth is the hallmark of totalitarian systems, which are kind of like dictatorships, but they want to control everything, mm-hmm. your thoughts, your emotions, everything else. So oh. uh, social credit systems, yeah, give you points based on your behavior scores, basically, and then you gain or lose privileges, which used to be considered freedoms and yeah. rights based on that. So I do talk about that in the book. Um, I talk about how technology, there's actually a push for using technology to survey, say, uh, what they consider it to be unconscious biases of oppressors. So that goes back to that neo-Marxist oppressed versus oppressor stuff. Wow. You see that being pushed for in what's called the diversity and inclusion toolkit that was put out uh, recently by the world economic forum. Mm-hmm. They, they published it. So they're advocating for using technology to measure uh, who needs further training regarding diversity and inclusion to be, to, uh, wow. you know, to conform to their definition of good. So you do see that a lot. I talk about that in the book. Um, and then there's pushes within a movement called transhumanism, which wants to take humans basically to the next level of, quote, quote, evolution using technology. And there's a lot of overlaps with Marxist ideas yeah. in that, too, because uh, Marxism, as Marx described it, is a, a system that involves humans trying to create themselves to reach a certain level of uh, their vision for what the world should look like. And that's, uh, what, what transhumanists do as well. So there's definitely a lot of overlaps with technology there. Wow.
0: It's surreal, isn't it, to see the whole world going the same direction? I mean, you'd expect, I know when China started their social credit score, um, several years ago, and they, and the articles that I read said, just watch, it's coming. But don't you think it's fascinating that the whole world is in lockstep with all of these things? I mean, did you ever think you'd see that, uh, in your lifetime? I mean, I sure, did not expect any of that. What What in the world is is up with that? I'd,
1: yeah, I'd hope not to. But one hallmark of totalitarian regimes as well is the the erasure of history, mm. uh, because if if you're not taught about the past, you really can't learn from it. So they mm. rewrite the past so that uh, students learn basically the Marxist mm. version of it uh, mm. that highlights the oppressed, and so on, and and basically uses uh, history to to get people to become revolutionaries instead of Mm counter-revolutionaries, and certainly use history to do either. Yeah,
0: Mm. yeah, that's a really good point, because if if a young person has spent their life in the public school system, they have that foundation of, they have no context, they can't critically think, and they they don't understand history, so they're they're going to higher education with that um, already in their backpack. I want to talk to you about the article on your blog, the dark, dark spiritual roots of global socialism, communist strategies before Marx. And you say remarkable historical writings reveal how today's attack on the family is part of a much older agenda with documented links to spiritual darkness. Now you were in Paris, right? You were in a cemetery mm-hmm. and you were looking for a specific grave and you mentioned two people that I actually don't really know anything about. Charles Fourier and Robert Owen. Can you tell us a little bit about what were you looking for in that cemetery? I'm fascinated by that.
1: Absolutely. So I was looking for the grave of Charles Fourier, and he was a guy who lived, um, both of these guys actually lived at the end of the 1700s into the early 1800s, and they were what you call utopian socialists. So in other words, these guys were socialists before Marx. They were advocating for communism before Marx did, And they believe that some sort of reorganized form of society based around some version of communism would basically redeem humanity from its core problems and usher in a type of heaven on earth. So something about Marxism and its precursors is that, you know how lies are more convincing when there's truth mixed in? Mm -hmm. That's kind of what happens because they point out real problems or exacerbated, they point out or exacerbate real problems, and then they propose faulty solutions that can only backfire because those solutions are based on a wrong worldview foundation, Mm -hmm. some sort of human reasoning instead of God's word. So in this case, the utopian socialists Fourier and, and Owen believed that that um, human brokenness doesn't result from sin like what the Bible talks about, but it results from what one scholar called arbitrary deviations from eternal principles of natural law, wow. justice, and reason. <laughs> so deviations from what humans are supposed to be in this man-made version of what they think humans are supposed, mm. to, supposed to be. So they believe that one of those deviations was marriage. So they thought that marriage was this unnatural institution that restricts free uh, sexual expression and then suppresses happiness and authenticity and productivity. And we can actually see these ideas much earlier. There's a guy I, I also read about in, in this upcoming book, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was a Swiss philosopher uh, even before the French Revolution. And, and he also wrote about um, you know, basically that uh, if you're not being true to yourself, then that's that's kind of the, the problem with humanity and society corrupts people. People are basically good. So that ties into what we're seeing today in our culture as well. But, but anyway, that's basically what these, these guys believed. So they thought that the way to get to freedom and peace and harmony was to abandon the current social system. So you have to overturn the, the pillars of present civilization and bring in this new social system, which requires the abolition of family and marriage. So I actually have a quote in the in the blog and in, in the book from Friedrich Engels, who worked closely with Karl Marx. Uh, they co-authored the Communist Manifesto together. And Engels said, Three great obstacles seem to Owen, especially to block the path to social reform, private property, religion, and the present form of marriage. So these are the things they thought had to be overthrown. Wow. So Marx, yeah, Marx actually said that he owed a, a great debt to these guys. <laughs> so it's really not surprising to find that their thinking is in... Theories that we're seeing today, like radical feminism, you can find that back in Fourier's writings as well.
0: Yeah, he said, it is women who suffer most from civilization. It was up to them to attack it. Well, there's a presumption for you, right? Um, He blamed women for not sufficiently awakening to the need to revolt against civilization. Gee, I didn't know that was our job. If these ideas sound familiar, then it may come as no surprise that Fourier has been credited with coining the term Feminist. Surprise, 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 right? <laughs> yep.
1: Um, yeah, so people... Go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. This is going on, you know, hundreds of years ago. These aren't modern ideas. So, yes.
0: Yeah. Now, you say that these two, uh, Owen and Fourier, are utopian socialists. Uh, Marx and Engels, were they... Is there such a thing? I mean, were they, what, scientific socialists, economic socialists? So there's two different kinds? Maybe more than that.
1: Well, they, they thought that they were scientific socialists. Um, so they thought that they were just looking at, like, very real principles of what Mm. actually happens in the world and not really going beyond that. Um, And they thought that uh, Fourier and and Owen were being a little bit unscientific in their approach. But, of course, Marx and Engels had had some faulty assumptions, too, that caused some yeah. real problems. So none of them are really scientific, but uh, that, that was a distinction that, that they made.
0: Wow. Uh, and there are three key strategies which utopian socialists propose uh, for overturning societies. Number one, undermine marriage and family. Number two, target young people, especially through the education system. Surprise. Mm-hmm. Number three, subvert church and state, making these institutions agents of revolution rather than sentience of the status quo. Now, um, they were, it says here in your article, they vigorously touted the superiority of communal education of children, removal of children from parental control and influence. So there is nothing new under the sun, right? No. Yeah. No.
1: Wow. Nope. These are, these are strategies you find way back then, and you find them in the revolutionary strategies we see today. So part two of the book on Marxism, after I kind of lay out a bunch of this historical stuff, looks at the strategies that revolutionaries tend to use, and, and these are the ones that uh, that we see right back in, in the utopian socialist writings. On the bright side, Christians can also be countering these, these mm-hmm. strategies in, in some good ways, so that's what part three gets into. But but yeah, it was shocking for me to read through some of these writings yeah, by the utopian socialists and realize how long has this been going on for, how there is nothing new under the sun like what you said, and how it really is part of a dark spiritual agenda. And that became very obvious to me uh, quite quickly.
0: It, yeah, and I see um, you talk about spiritual connections. Um, so they, they combine the spiritual, this occultism, which is, you know, what Hitler did too. Here's, you say, back in 1817, Owen had publicly professed atheism. No surprises there. But by the time he wrote The Future of the Human Race, he had converted to spiritism or the occult, and he devotes a lengthy portion of his document to describing communication from spirits. Oh, surprise, surprise. Who advised him on how to distribute the document? So. Right. Uh, you talk about inviting uh, inviting trouble in the world, and now the Russian Revolution wasn't until, what, nineteen oh eight?
1: Yeah, nineteen seventeen or nineteen eighteen is the is okay. what I have in my head, but that might have been from reading reading about it after the fact.
0: But wow, so so but, tell us a little bit about. Um, I mean, I guess this is not too surprising. Uh, would you actually say that that he had satanic uh, contacts? I mean, we could certainly. F- when we understand what socialism and all this is, what what do you think about all of that as far as the spiritual aspect of um, spirit of Antichrist, I guess we could call it. Tell us a little bit right. about that.
1: Right, for sure. So, yeah, I um, I unpack it in, in the blog post a little bit more there, but basically um the Bible says we can test the spirits. Do they say mm-hmm. Jesus has come in the flesh or not? And mm-hmm. Owen's contacts that he was conversing with certainly didn't. They said Jesus was an inspired medium, not the Son of God. So they're obviously satanic um Beings that he's talking to, but he believes the, that there are these departed spirits that want to benefit humanity. So he wrote this this pamphlet called The Future of the Human Race, and it was one of those things that you can only read for a little bit at, the, at a time because you just have to step back and process, like, what in the yeah. world? Yeah. So he's talking about it, how you need the abolition of marriage uh, when law-made marriages should be abandoned. Then he says uh, kids can be relieved from the evil... Um, effects of unnatural parental associations and family training so you're getting rid of marriage, you're getting rid of uh, the families educating kids. Um, he's talking about getting rid of private property and then he said that'll bring about this new globalist era where uh, the human race can become superior citizens of the world, united to form one cordial brotherhood. So basically that one world thing that he thinks is incompatible with private property, he basically gives a you know, 18, 1800s version of the "you'll owe nothing and <laughs> be happy" speech. Yes, that had, and that speech.
0: <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, I think too, when we fast forward now and we see the transgender movement, which is completely out of control, and the alternative lifestyles, just the whole demonic aspect of that too. Um, this is this is where it's landing, and it's very disturbing to see all that. And I'm I'm looking back at your three foundations, and now since we're having this conversation, I see more than ever how those three foundations. And parents, I hope you're listening to this. The spiritual foundation, the intellectual foundation, and the interpersonal foundation. Those three things that the kids need before you send them out in the world, whether they go to university or not, they're going to be sent out into the world, uh, and the world is going to try and unravel what you have, uh, you know, uh, firmly planted in them and knitted together so carefully. Uh, So again, those three foundations make sure the kids have spiritual, intellectual, interpersonal, foundations. One time we have left, we only have seven minutes on Patricia. Mm -hmm. Uh, Critical thinking. How critical is it? And also the seven checks of critical thinking. Can you go through those for us?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this is just a method to help young people when they do see, say, Marxist messages or evolutionary messages or any kind of message that makes you go, wait a minute, I don't know if that's right. This is how you can break it down and figure out if it's actually worth believing or not. That's what critical thinking is about. So, based on starting with the Bible as our basis for truth, I have seven checks of critical thinking. Number one is checking Scripture, asking what does the Bible have to say about this topic, and then check two is checking the challenge. So, what about your faith? Does this act, this message, actually contradict? Is it contradicting the Bible, or is it just contradicting some sort of human-made idea you might have incorporated into our belief? So, checking the challenge. And then you can check the source, so who's telling you this message, what's their credibility, what's their worldview, are they uh, coming through the lens of man's word or God's word, because that's going to impact their assumptions. You can also ask how did they arrive at their information, is it being reported accurately, so I have a whole appendix in the, the back of my book, Prepare to Thrive, to give some research tips for finding those original information sources. And then four is check the definition. So how are keywords being defined? Do their meanings change? We're seeing all the time culture redefining words, and it's Mm -hmm. just so important to ask, what sense do you mean that in? And then five, check for propaganda. So that's just communication that tries to persuade by appealing to something other than logic or misusing facts. So we can ask, why does this message sound true? Um, Is it trying to persuade by appealing to logic or something else? So is this message true or false because? Because lots of people believe it? Not necessarily. Because someone smart said so? Not necessarily. Because I read it on the internet? Mm-hmm. Not necessarily. <laughs> Not necessarily. This is true or false because. And then six, check the interpretation. So ask what parts of this message are facts, things that we can observe in the present, so what we call observational science. And then what parts are assumptions or interpretations, speculations about the past, for instance. And then what's another way we can observe the same facts through a biblical worldview? You typically find that the biblical worldview fits the facts a lot better. So check the interpretations. And then number seven is just do a last uh, check, checking the logic. Are there any other errors in reasoning that should make me think twice before believing this message? So those are the seven checks of critical thinking. I unpack them in a lot more depth in the book. You can also find uh, more about them on our website, answersgenesis.org, and a number of other resources we have available through there.
0: Wow. Patricia Angler, Prepare to Thrive, a survival guide for Christian students. Very thorough. Also, um... The podcast, Zero Compromise, uh, uh, what what topics, uh, who does the podcast, uh, Who who is it aimed at, what, what kind of topics are covered on Zero Compromise?
1: Yeah, for sure. So we're pretty excited. That's a new podcast that Answers in Genesis has released for young adults specifically, but really for any Christian. So I'm on there along with my friend uh, Jessica Jorowski, a wildlife biologist, and then a resident rocket scientist, Rob Webb. <laughs> he has a cool testimony. We, we have an episode about that. So we interview different people the Lord brings us, whether that's our resident speakers, scientists, authors, uh, different experts and people that come speak at our conferences and people that, who work around the ministry. And we get their stories, their testimonies. We get them to explain um, aspects of their teaching. And we try to focus on practical discipleship for young people. So we ask them, what are your top tips for uh, young people today? What's the top advice you'd give someone to stand on the truth of God with 0 compromise? in today's culture. So that's what that's about.
0: Yes, I lis- I listened to a few of them, and I thought they were fantastic. Um, awesome. Again, uh, Patricia has a blog, too, at answersingenesis.org slash blogs. Um, and now the, there's a study guide and a leader guide coming out with uh, Prepare to Thrive. Is that out already?
1: Yes, so it's available for sure for pre-order. So um, we're going to, I haven't heard if they officially come to the warehouse yet, but you can definitely order them online now. Okay. So that's a brand new study guide and leader guide so that the whole idea is to bring the different generations together, parents, pastors, Mm -hmm. mentors, older people within the church, campus ministry leaders, anyone who has any interest in mentoring young people, bring them together with high school or college students for a up to 15-week study going through the book together, because that's where the best discipleship and preparation is going to happen. So that is now available. And... Um, as far as I know, it, it should still be on sale on our on our website for pre-order purposes.
0: Okay, so like uh, small groups could do it, or like you said, church groups, yep. and, and have different uh, generation age groups going through it together. That's a great idea. And you said 15 weeks?
1: Uh, yep. Okay. So yeah, any kind of uh, group of older and younger people together, or just young people by themselves, but ideally yeah. with older mentors. Yeah. So whether that's within families, families coming together, sure. or at a church, or in a small group, Any kind of, any kind of system like that, this is, this is what that's
0: for. I like the way you think on that. Um, just, we have two minutes left and I want to ask you, you're from Canada and Canada has changed radically also, just like the U.S. is, but any thoughts about Canada, the euthanasia, the, the truckers, the, just the general socialism thing? What, how do you feel about your homeland at this particular point?
1: I definitely can use prayer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mentioned in the beginning of the book on Marxism how, yeah, if you want to kind of get a, a feel for the situation, you can look up a report called, uh, um, Capital and Debt Today, Canada Beyond 150. It's on the Canadian government website. It's a big disclaimer saying it wasn't by the government, but it is explicitly advocating for social credit systems. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's definitely being heavily pushed there. And, um, unfortunately, it's, it's, uh, turning into a case study of, of, Uh, people leaving god's word but we also do see positive things like uh, say pastor james coates is coming to speak for our um, october conference here at answers in genesis and he was imprisoned in canada but uh has a a strong faith and and different things that he can share for the Mm. church because of that for church-related activities so so yes the lord is working but yeah we we do appreciate prayer
0: it's different yeah
1: is your marxism book out yet I'm only on chapter five out of 11, okay. so it's going to take a little bit to, to write, but, but a lot of the content for part one is available as blog posts right okay.
0: now. Well, you're a busy lady and the Lord is definitely using you. And I, I was so impressed throughout the book of just your faith and your boldness and, and, uh, how you've approached what God has given you to do in life. I just think it's fantastic. So, Patricia, thank you so much. We could probably go another hour, but thank you so much for joining me and, And um, Lord bless your ministry and everybody over there at AIG and all the work that you guys do. Thanks for being on today.
1: Praise God. Thanks so much.
0: All right. The book is Prepare to Thrive, a survival guide for Christian students. And go to her blog. Also listen to the podcast. There's so much there. Uh, Glad you joined me today. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Jeff Weigand from Madison, Wisconsin. And have a really, really good day on purpose. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord 1 Corinthians 15:58 God bless you